Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for January 2023. Happy New Year. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And today we've got six excellent papers for you. We're going to take you through a number of different topics, starting with pulmonary embolism. We've got two great papers on well, venous thromboembolism. And uh, we're going to start with a really nice paper. Practice review, Sarah. So it's no, no critical appraisal, lighthearted, immediately relevant to clinical practice. And probably a good introduction to 2023, I think, for our listeners. Yeah, I think we all need that. So you don't need to get your thinking caps on too much for this. But there's some great pearls of wisdom in this practice review. It's part two. So we, you remember last month we covered, uh, very briefly covered part one of this practice review on pulmonary embolism. And now we've got part two. And um, we're going to cover this one because I thought this was an excellent practice review with loads of take-home points for our practice in emergency departments. So let's go through it. It's written by Philippa Serebriarkov, um, and there are some other well-known authors in NISTs, including Dan Horner and Matt Reed. Uh, and they've given us uh, an overview of the approach to managing patients with pulmonary embolism in the ED. And I wanted to just take you through a few of the key points. You should have a read of the whole paper because it's really great, actually. But let's go through some of the key points. So first point uh, when we're managing patients with PE uh, is about risk stratification. So you'll probably know that we classify PE traditionally as being massive, submassive, or non-massive. But the authors here have introduced this concept of uh, high, medium and low risk, which seems to be the direction of travel. It's what the uh, international and national guidelines use, the European Society of Cardiology, the American College of Chest Physicians and uh, NICE also use this kind of classification. Uh, and if we have a look, first of all, about why this is important, well, patients who are classed as high risk of PE have a really high mortality rate, so it's as high as 65%, whereas if you're low risk, the mortality rate is less than 1%. So that's a huge difference. So it's really important for us to risk stratify people with PE once we've made that diagnosis. The next question is, how is it important for treatment? Well, we all know the key question is, should we give thrombolysis for patients with massive PE or high-risk PE? Um, the question is, you know, do they, do they need thrombolysis? And the answer is that all of the guidelines that I mentioned recommend that we should give or at least consider giving thrombolysis in patients who are at high risk. And they define that essentially as hemodynamic instability, so persistent hypotension. NICE doesn't actually define what they mean by hemodynamic instability, but that's essentially what we mean. A shocked patient with, uh, with pulmonary embolism is high risk. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the low-risk patients who could go home for treatment. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. One of the next questions that we might ask in our patient with pulmonary embolism is, do they have signs of right ventricular dysfunction? And there are lots of ways to measure that. We could do an echo, for example. There are some of the measures that we can use on CT scan. And there are biomarkers as well, all of which are valid ways of uh, assessing for right ventricular dysfunction. Let's just talk about the biomarkers because troponin is commonly measured in patients with PE, particularly at the higher risk and um, the question is, what do you do with it? So the authors point to evidence that shows that if you have a high troponin, you're much more likely to die, five times more likely to die than if you don't have a high troponin. And it's similar for BNP as well. Uh, so these markers are telling us that patients are sicker and more likely to die. However, 
they made a really important point that there's just not sufficient evidence at the moment to use those biomarkers to dictate treatment because you're not going to use them to guide thrombolysis. You maybe use them in a sort of subjective way to feed into the decisions that are in that sort of grey zone. But um, by themselves, you can't use them to decide if your patient's going to need thrombolysis. Next thing we should cover is outpatient treatment. So the authors tell us that around 95% of patients with PE could be categorised as non-high risk and they may be eligible for outpatient treatment. So how do we decide on that? Well, there are three commonly re- used uh, risk stratification tools. There's PESI, there's the simplified PESI, and there's the Hestia score. NICE recommends that we risk stratify, but doesn't recommend using any specific score. The European Society of Cardiology recommends SPESI or Hestia. And with those tools, we can identify people who could be treated at home for their PE. How do we treat them? Well, DOACs are the main agents that we might consider uh, when patients are eligible. But the authors go through a number of special situations where we need to consider whether the DOAC is actually right. So in pregnancy, for example, we would use low molecular weight heparin typically. In renal impairment, we might need to adjust the dose or even avoid DOACs completely. And in obesity, the guidelines suggest that we should use agents that can be monitored, and that's not the DOACs, although there is emerging evidence that the DOACs are effective in obese patients. But it's something to really carefully consider. And then the last thing to cover on this one is the really controversial issue of subsegmental PE. So a lot of people will you know, say, actually, if you see a subsegmental PE on your CTPA, well, maybe the patient doesn't actually need treatment because it's kind of insignificant. And the authors go through the evidence for that. And there isn't a lot, you know. There's a prospective cohort study which enrolled 292 patients with subsegmental PE. And the bottom line from this first prospective study only supports withholding anticoagulation for patients with subsegmental PE who've got normal serial bilateral leg ultrasound. So you can't blanket say we're going to avoid anticoagulation for these patients. You've got to do serial bilateral leg ultrasounds to further risk stratify them. Although you could use shared decision-making to decide. So I found this a really, really helpful practice review. Loads of great nuggets. There's so much more in the article as well. So if you have time, go and have a read of the whole thing. It, I guarantee there are some pearls of wisdom that you will pick up that will change your practice. No, that's um, a really helpful um, practice review, especially in, in relation to the, the first paper as well. It's such a difficult and, and at times controversial topic because it can be really challenging to diagnose PEs. So, um, you know, it's been great covering some of those key points. And that brings me on to sort of on a similar vein, um, talking about thromboprophylaxis in ambulatory emergency department patients um, and how we manage them with lower limb immobilization after injury. Chloe Craney et al. did a national survey um, utilizing the Trainee Emergency Research Network, TURN, and the Royal College of Emergency Medicine to really understand how across the UK we go about thromboprophylaxis um, for these lower limb injured patients who might be in a walking boot or might be in a plaster. And I think what's really useful uh, to be reminded about is that symptomatic uh, venous thromboembolism, so symptomatic VT, occurs in probably around 1% to 2% of ambulant patients who have a lower limb uh, immobilization after injury. So it's small but really important because it has significant complications. 
So what they managed to do through the network um, across the whole of the UK is um, survey responses from 116 emergency departments around the UK. So 89 in England, 15 in Scotland, 6 in Wales and 6 in Northern Ireland. So a really nice spread. And that covers probably nearly two-thirds of the emergency departments around the UK. Around 95% of respondents reported that they considered thromboprophylaxis in ambulatory patients who were managed in a lower limb rigid cast of any sort. But only half, around 53%, would do so for somebody in a walking boot. And then 20% when using um, a removable knee splint. Within the guidance by NICE, um, which is where a lot of this comes from, there are different risk assessment models that can be used, and NICE guidance has one of those. And the survey goes on to sort of talk about how people are risk stratifying patients, which I think is really important. So the most frequently used risk model that uh, departments use tend to be their own, which are locally derived, followed by the NICE guidance themselves. Interestingly, there are some specific risk assessment tools that you can use for this indication, but only about 16% of departments use these specific risk scores. What was really interesting was about, well, three departments did not do any uh, venous thromboprophylaxis at all for this indication for any of this, um, irrespective of the risk. And again, you know, what thromboprophylaxis agent is the first line? So most departments, about 70% use low molecular weight heparin, followed by a DOAC, and then um, some departments, um, as in only one, used aspirin as a thromboprophylaxis agent. The other part of this question was, you know, who follows this up, basically, or when do you stop the initial prescribing of, of it? So for most people... It was when Fracture Clinic reviewed the patient, and that's what happened in, in most cases. And I think what's really interesting about this, Rick, is really there is so much variability across the UK. And I think this, again, sort of um, mirrors a little bit about, you know, the challenges of practicing, you know, in emergency medicine with VTE that I've seen working from department to department. And I think it's really useful to just get a flavour. And I think more work probably needs to be done nationally to get this right yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? We've covered a couple of these national surveys. I think there was one on pneumothorax, which showed a similar variation in practice. And you can see that once again here. It was interesting that there's even variation about treatment. 30% of departments using DOACs. I'd say if I was a patient and I had lower limb immobilization, I'd really like to take a DOAC, even though there might not be direct evidence for it. Uh, it's just oh, so absolutely. much more comfortable than using low molecular weight heparin. Yeah, the thought of stabbing needles into me does not appeal to me in the slightest. As you say, I'd rather use the DOAC, but that's me personally. Right, uh, what are we on to next? So I've taken a look at a paper written by Colin Midyard as first author, and this is looking at ambulance responses. So what they've done is they've done, they've, they've done an economic analysis, basically, to have a look at what the right balance would be between rapid response vehicles that maybe have a single paramedic in them and dual crew ambulances where you've got a paramedic and a technician or possibly two paramedics going out and responding. Obviously, the rapid response vehicle has the advantage of only having one paramedic, so it's the, the staff costs are lower. 
whereas the dual crew ambulance has two members of staff. However, the RRV can't take your patient to the hospital. (laughs) So there's a quid pro quo there. Uh, So what the authors have done is basically they looked at data from East Midlands Ambulance Service, and they've modelled this data to have a look at, well, what's the probability that, you know, when you send an ambulance out to a patient, they actually take them to hospital, so conveyance. Uh, And the answer was in this study about 72%. So about 72% of all of the calls that they responded to in EMAS were taken to hospital. Uh, And then they had a look, let's say, well, what if we changed it? And what if we said, actually, we're going to have more paramedics in RRVs and less dual crew ambulances? Would it be cost effective? Would we save money overall? And so they did some very, very clever modeling and had a look at this. And basically, they found that if you use more RRVs than we do currently, then you're going to, it's going to cost more. Okay. Um, with a 72% conveyance rate, it's not worth it. You're going to have to pay a lot more money to invest in the RRVs. At the moment, about 10% of the calls was, were attended by an RRV. So if you try and increase that, um, you're going to be costing yourself more money. And that's, so that's not terribly great for the ambulance service. However, if you can get your conveyance rate down, so at 60%, you start to see the costs leveling out, and particularly at 45%. They had a few different scenarios. And you start to see the, the, some cost savings, um, they've got the costs breaking even so with, with with the more rrvs so it starts to then make sense to have more rrvs if you can get your conveyance rate down basically so i found this quite interesting uh, the modeling is quite hard to get your head around but um the it, it's obviously a really topical issue over winter you know we face long ambulance waits that this article talks about cycle time the concept of you know the time that the paramedics take from the call to sort of seeing through the job and our cycle times are going to be horrendous this winter because patients are in corridors and if you can avoid conveying the patients to hospital you can make some really important time savings and cost savings with that the um, Carter review from a few years ago said that's a really important thing for the NHS to reduce conveyance rates by ambulance. Uh, and here we've got evidence, you know, saying that actually, you know, okay, in order to try and make that happen, we've got to get our conveyance rates down for it to make more sense for us to get more rapid response vehicles and dual crew ambulances. So we, at the moment, it doesn't make sense. But if we can get the conveyance rate down, then it's a worthwhile investment. Absolutely. And I think it's something that's probably not been considered before. It is. It's a very interesting approach to the situation. So if you're, you know, if you're into planning your ambulance service out, I mean, this could give you some really important nuggets of information about how much it will cost and whether you're likely to get a return on that with your RRVs. So much potential to do more with this, with community emergency medicine services springing up. RRVs are likely to play a growing role. Uh, and potentially we can get that non-conveyance rate uh, up um, even more with things like points of care testing uh, and potentially physicians going out to see patients in the pre-hospital environment. But it's a thing to watch this space on. Yeah, absolutely. And so the next paper that I'm going to talk about is on a similar theme, but this time it's looking at the outcomes of paediatric patients who are not transported to hospital by emergency medical services, a data linkage study. 
So this is from our um, Australian colleagues, and the first author is by Naimi, Emily Naimi. So apologies if I've got that wrong. And this was an, a massive study looking at the pediatric patients who went through the equivalent of um, the ambulance service there, so triple zero, and they wanted to find out well what happened to these patients who paramedics went out to, but they weren't conveyed to the hospital. So to give you an idea of how many patients this was over a four and a half year period, this was 62,975 non-transported patients were included with the sort of mean age of around seven years. And it's worth really looking at the paper to really understand the sort of types of patients and what you know people were conveying for. But um, if we talk about some of the results, Looking at paramedic crew characteristics, crews with up to three years of experience were more likely to refer the patient to their GP or to document a refusal of transport versus crews in which the longest serving paramedic had been employed for 11 years or more were likely to more likely to record transport as not being required or transport via other means. So that gives you some thoughts around the paramedics. Um, looking at patient outcomes, overall, 2.2% of the patients were recontacted or they recontacted the emergency medical services within 48 hours with 13.7% of those presenting to the emergency department and 2.4% of those then getting admitted to hospital. There were two deaths over this period of these 65,000 patients. Uh, one was documented as being transported to hospital via other means and one was referred by the GP. Interestingly, only 54% of patients who'd planned to go to hospital via other means were then linked to turn up in the emergency department. So somewhere 40% got lost somewhere. And about 8.5% of those were admitted. Among paramedic-initiated non-transports, around 5.6% presented to an emergency department where only about 1% of those were admitted and 0.05% had an adverse event. So to give you that context, there were in the same period for those paediatric patients who were documented as being transported to a public emergency department, 82% of those were then linked to an emergency department. So what's really interesting is that doesn't quite equate um, to where these patients are getting lost, and, and, and this study doesn't define where. One of the interesting things, I think, as well, um, they did lots of lots of analysis. But interestingly, if the EMS attendance was during the early hours of the morning, between 0400 and 0800, this was more likely associated with an increased odds of hospital admission. And this is irrespective of whether there's an abnormal vital sign or initial assessment was no longer associated with hospital admission. So it didn't seem to matter whether they were ill or not, they were more likely to end up in hospital. In short, really, and there's lots of really interesting nuggets to take out from this paper, I think those patients who are not being transported to hospital by emergency medical services, very few come to significant harm. But depending on the time of day of when those contacts are happening, you may be more or less likely to end up in hospital being transported. 
um, which I think is an interesting point and may reflect some of my personal practice as well. I don't know what you think, Rick. Yeah, so it's reassuring that the event rates are low. However, depends on the severity of the events, doesn't it? I guess what's really important is there were two deaths in there. Um, so, and it only takes a small number of deaths to change your practice because that's very significant. If they're avoidable in particular, I don't know if they gave us data about whether they were avoidable or not, but you know, if they were, that's the, even just two out of 65,000 cases is, is pretty significant. But there are, like you said, you, they've broken it down into subgroups and had a look at what were the presentations and diagnoses that predicted whether you were likely to be readmitted. And it looks like if the paramedics diagnosed you as having no problem identified, then you're in a pretty good group, actually, because they seem to have a, a lower rate of recontact than patients with other conditions. Like, if, you know, for example, if they diagnosed infection and left you at home, you were more likely than the others on average to need recontact with ambulance service and attend the emergency department. So I guess within this, there are some sort of um, nuances that we can pick out that could help to guide paramedics and ambulance services to determine who we can leave at home at the scene in the yeah. future. Yeah, and I think as well, the other thing that I didn't mention there was about uh, abnormal vital signs. So if you had an abnormal vital sign, you were more likely to end up in hospital, which sort of makes sense, really. And the common things, you know, that you'd expect um, pediatric patients to get to the emergency department with were things such as, you know, respiratory illnesses and injury mostly are are the things. So, Rick, it's uh, over to you now for the final paper. Yeah, so lastly, I've taken a look at a paper looking at vitamin D deficiency and sepsis. So specifically, the authors wanted to know if there's an association between vitamin D deficiency and mortality in patients who have been diagnosed with severe sepsis in the emergency department. You see in recent years, there's been quite a growing focus, I think, on vitamin D deficiency, a recognition that lots of patients actually have it. So here we've got a single centre retrospective cohort study, which included 263 patients, all of whom had severe sepsis. And what they've done is pretty simple, really. They measured vitamin D within 24 hours of admission. They said that you've got severe vitamin D deficiency if you had a level less than 12 nanograms per mil. And then they had a look at 90-day mortality in the patients who did have vitamin D deficiency and the patients who didn't. So the first thing that was really interesting is that 46% of all the patients had vitamin D deficiency, which is huge. So it just shows how many people have this. I mean, we don't get enough sunshine in this country, clearly. Anyhow, did it make a difference? Well, it did. The overall mortality of these patients in 90 days was about 26%. But the odds ratio for mortality, if you had vitamin D deficiency, was 2.69. And the confidence intervals don't cross one. The p-value is less than 0.05. It's 0.043. So what we can say is, vitamin D deficiency significantly increases the chances that patients are going to die if they uh, present to the ED with severe sepsis. And they adjusted for all sorts of things as well. So they did a regression analysis. They adjusted for your Apache 2 score, your um, age-adjusted Charlson comorbidity index, your sex, arterial lactate, and the presence of liver cirrhosis. And even after adjusting for all of those confounders, they still saw a relationship. And this persisted in the ICU patients as well. So among those subgroup that went to ICU, the hazard ratio for in-hospital death was 3.06. Again, it's statistically significant. So you're more likely to die 
if you have severe sepsis and you've got vitamin D deficiency. There are a couple of little caveats. It's an observational study. When you do adjustments for these confounders, it's never quite the same as having a perfectly matched group at baseline like you would in an RCT, for example. So you can see, for example, that the patients who had vitamin D deficiency were significantly older than the others. They had higher calcium, they had more concomitant bacteremia. So they were potentially a bit different than the others. Bear that in mind. But this is a signal to suggest that actually there's something important in vitamin D deficiency. I'm not sure it's quite enough to say that we need to measure it in everyone who attends the ED, because what are you going to do about it in the ED anyway? But it's certainly something that gives us a bit of a flag, you know, actually, what number one, lots of our patients have this. And number two, if they do have it, they're more likely to have a worse outcome. So I won't be putting any windows in my department to get more sun in or have syringes of vitamin D yet then, Eric? No, I mean, basically, we can't wait for the summer to come now. I mean, it is January after all, and it's that time when we're absolutely yearning for it. And uh, this this shows that we need it. But actually, there's a really important point. And I know I know people who had all sorts of different symptoms uh, with tingling in the fingers and things like that. I ended up having a vitamin D measured just out of interest. And it's been really low. And, you know, they're, they're people who go outdoors as much as everyone else and yet still have a vitamin D deficiency. So important stuff. Absolutely. And I think that brings us to the end of our five papers for this month, doesn't it, Rick? It does. That's hopefully a good start to the new year for you. Get you up to date. Absolutely. So um, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me until February. See you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.